0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for A veteran Story on AmericasWebRadio.com. My guest today is Jim Nomad Lawrence. As a fighter pilot, Nomad flew 432 combat missions in North Vietnam, South Vietnam, and Laos. In total, Nomad has flown 608 combat missions in Vietnam, Bosnia, Iraq, and Afghanistan. He has logged over 7,700 hours in single-seat fighters, and when commercial and private aviation is thrown to the mix, he has logged over 41,250 hours behind the controls of numerous aircraft in Still County. No man, my friend, welcome to the program.
2: Uh, good morning, Pete. Thanks very much. I appreciate very much you having me and uh, and very much appreciate what you do for the veterans uh, of our country.
1: Well, thank you very much, Nomad. Uh, you know, in my opinion, you were probably born in the cockpit of a jet fighter. But in reality, you you were indeed born to fly. Tell the folks about your childhood and your early addiction to aviation. <laughs> Well, you're,
2: you're probably uh, close to being right. I guess my parents told me that uh, when I was born, when I slid out of the birth canal from my mom, the first thing I did was look up at the sky and say airplane. And uh, <laughs> that seems to be, uh, you know, where the good Lord wanted me to do. And so that's uh, that's what I did. I was very, very fortunate. And uh, when I was – I started flying when I was five. Uh, I used to really? beg my dad to uh, – yeah. <laughs> I used to beg my dad, uh, when I grew up in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, I begged my dad to take me out to the airport. And uh, back then, you know, he could drop me off and I'd go stand at the corner of the fence and, you know, watch the airplanes come and go. Uh, he had uh, a lot of friends out there, knew my dad, and I would stand there, airliners would come and go. Um, when I was nine, I was standing there one day and a uh, gentleman named Mr. Jim Hankins uh, came up to me who knew my parents, and, and they knew him. Mr. Hankins owned uh, Beechcraft di- Distributor Ship, Aircraft Distributor uh, Ship there in Jackson, and he asked me if uh, I would like to come to work for him uh, washing and waxing airplanes and fueling airplanes and this that and the other, and faster than the speed of sound, I said yes. And, uh, <laughs> So I went to work for uh, Mr. Hankins, and I worked for Mr. Hankins until I left for Navy flight training at uh, 19. Um, As I went through high school, I soloed on my 16th birthday. Uh, By the time I graduated from high school, I had my commercial multi-engine private ticket in about 1,400 hours. So uh, I worked during the summer, you know, with Mr. Hankins, and it is Kind of skyrocketed, you know. From there, um, it seemed yeah, like.
1: Yeah, you know, let me ask you this: uh, was the first time you went up uh, as a, I guess, a trainee as as a, a student pilot? When's the first time you went up, and I guess you were still in love with aviation after you did that?
2: Yeah, the uh, the first time that I had a formal um, instruction, I was uh, fifteen. And I flew for, I guess, about four and a half hours of formal instruction, even though I'd been flying you know, for a while. And then on my 16th birthday, I, I soloed, and I'll, uh, I'll never forget when my instructor climbed out of the airplane and said, okay, go do it. And I took off, and I'll never forget looking, looking to the right, and there was nobody in the airplane but me, and I haven't stopped smiling since. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what type of aircraft did you solo on? Uh, I
2: soloed a uh, Cessna 172.
1: Ah, my favorite airplane. All right. Okay, yeah, so when a you, good one. Oh, yes, sir. When you got out of high school, you had 1,400 hours uh, of log uh, already in airplanes. Let me ask, why did you choose marine aviation?
2: Well... Um When I was five years old, I asked my dad to take me to see a movie called Flying Levinex, starring John Wayne and (laughs) Robert Ryan. And uh, the the second that I I watched that uh, and we walked out of the movie, I looked up at my dad and I told him when I grew up, I wanted to be a Marine or Navy fighter pilot and I wanted to fly for Delta. And, of course, in the movie, they were flying uh, Hellcats, uh, F-6F Hellcats and F-4U Corsairs. And ever since that moment, uh, the Hellcat has been my all-time favorite airplane.
1: Yeah, it shot down more Japanese planes uh, than any other aircraft in the Pacific. That was a great, great Correct. aircraft. Correct. Yeah. Uh, now, yeah. when you went, when you went to Navy flight training and Marine flight training, you were only 19 years old. Uh, tell the folks how you managed to get into. Navy aviation at 19 years old without a college degree?
2: Well, at the time, um, the Navy and the Marine Corps had what they call the NAVCAD and MARCAD program, where if you could pass um, the two-year college equivalency test, you didn't have to have a college degree. So even though I went through, I joined the Marine Reserves um, in an artillery outfit with my goal in mind to go to Navy uh, flight training as a Marine, and I went through Paris Island as a boot Marine, went to infantry training, came back. Uh, The commanding officer knew what I wanted to do, so I took the battery of tests, and then uh, a Marine officer, selection officer, came down and met with me and uh, gave me a battery of tests, and then he said that I had to pass a two-year college equivalency test, which covered everything i mean english literature math physics you name it so for 10 days i took these tests and then you know waited and miraculously um you know i passed the uh tests i think that vietnam was on its way and and they were just desperate for pilots actually but uh, <laughs> it didn't matter cuz i got selected <laughs>
1: there you go uh, what year did you go into uh, marine aviation training uh, went into navy flight
2: training uh, which you know the marine corps supposedly is the department of the navy so we all went through navy flight training I mean we were wings of gold naval aviation wings and uh, I started in October of 65
1: 1965 yep that's when things were really heating up in Vietnam alright yes they were had yeah, yeah you betcha you already had 1,400 hours under your belt in, in private aircraft. Did you tell any of your instructors that you had uh, uh, flown before? Absolutely not.
2: I, I didn't <laughs> say a word. <laughs> <laughs> tell, but, us about uh,
1: your, tell us about your pilot training. Go ahead.
2: Well, it was really interesting. I had actually flown the T-34B um which was the airplane that we flew at VT-1 in primary training. But in my class, uh, my pre-flight class that we went through 12 weeks at Pensacola, I ended up being number six out of my class. And we had academy graduates, uh, we had college graduates all in this class of, I think we had like 65 guys. And uh, I ended up being, the last week of uh, pre-flight my class ran the regiment, so I became the battalion commander for the 2nd second, uh, second Battalion. But then when we went to VT-1, uh, my instructor, Bob Babos, great guy, he and I became lifelong friends after this. But uh, we don't have the time for me to go through everything about uh, my first flight. But uh, right after my first flight in the T-34, um, Captain Babos kinda of grabbed me by the neck because it became very evident that I had flown before. And I'd even actually flown the T thirty four B. I had about twenty hours in it. And <laughs> uh so anyway I got accelerated uh, through V T one. Uh I stole, uh, they knew how bad I wanted to fly fighters. Um, but the week that I finished I graduated from V T one when the orders came down, um uh, There were no jet assignments. There were no fighter assignments. And I had to uh, go through the chain of command to just beg to fly fighters. And uh, long story real short, I ended up in Admiral Alexander Hayward, who was a Cineventra three-star Navy Admiral. He was the only guy that could change my orders, because I had orders to VT-2 at Whiting flying T-28s which meant that I was going to either go to C-130s or I was going to go to helicopters. And I didn't have the coordination to fly helicopters, I didn't think. Too many moving parts. But um, anyway, I went in, and uh, when I walked into Admiral Hayward's office, it was really interesting. I was told to be there at 8 o'clock in the morning after going through the chain of command all the way up to the senior Marine, who happened to be the dad of one of my classmates. But anyway... Walked into his office at 8 o'clock in the morning, like I was told to do. This big burly commander, uh, the Admiral's aide, looked at me, and when I reported, I said, Sir, Cadet Lawrence reporting to the Admiral's order. And he said, oh, uh, Cadet Lawrence, uh, have a seat. We'll be right with you. Well, that was at 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. I'm still sitting there. People are coming and going. And about that time, this big booming voice came over the, the booming box there and said, well, Bob, I'm going to go to lunch. Is there anything else I need to do? And the aide said, well, yes, Admiral, uh, Cadet Lawrence is here to see you. And uh, he said, oh, yes, Cadet Lawrence, send him in. Well, right then I knew that I was going to be a one-man weather station in Adak, Alaska. (laughs) So um, I walked into the Admiral's office. Uh, I'll never forget two things. One, I didn't know that a mahogany desk could be that big. And number two, I didn't know there was that much gold out of Fort Knox, because a three-star Navy Admiral wears a lot of gold. And uh, so I saluted, said, sir, could I Lawrence reporting to the Admiral? And the first thing that Admiral Hayward said to me, it wasn't, uh, oh, good morning, stand at ease, blah, blah. First thing he said to me was, why can't you go where the Navy orders you to go? And I thought, yep, I'm going to ADAC. But anyway, I went into a... uh, and a tirade about why I wanted to fly fighters and you know I ended up number one in my VT1 class and blah 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 so at the end of my tirade Admiral Hayward has never said a word to me and I'm still a detention and he looked at me and he said uh, he pushed back from his desk opened up his top drawer pulled out a set of orders and he handed me the orders and he said Cadet Lawrence you carry out these orders and I said aye aye sir and when I pulled the orders back to me at the top was in big black letters, Jet Pipeline Fighters. Uh, so I lost it. And uh, finally, Admiral Hayward said, Lawrence, get out of my office. i got better things to do than listen to you. And I said, aye, sir. <laughs> and as I left, he, uh, he said, Jim. And, and I turned around, and he said, uh, you make me proud. And I said, aye, sir. And oddly enough, a real short epilogue to that, Many years later, when I was flying for Western Airlines in Salt Lake City, I came in one day and I thought, you know, somebody that makes a decision like that in somebody's life that is so monumental, and they never know what happened. They never know how it turned out. So I sat down and I wrote a 12-page letter to Admiral Hayward, found out that he lived in Greer, South Carolina, sent him the letter, and a couple of weeks later, my phone rang, and it was Admiral Hayward, and he and I talked for two and a half hours. And, wow. And... Um, yeah, it was, it was amazing, and he, he actually told me that, he said, you're not going to believe this, Jim, he said, but uh, I remember you. I remember you walking into my office, and I looked up going, my God, we're letting children fly airplanes. And <laughs> so <laughs> <I'm sitting.
1: laughs> that was it. But is he said, awesome. I knew how
2: bad you wanted to fly fighters, mm-hmm. and so, you know, we sent you to fighters.
1: Oh, my God, that's a great story. All right, Nomad, we have to go to a first break. Uh, Folks, we'll be right back in just a couple of minutes. Uh, Stay with us. Uh, Nomad is on his way to Vietnam.
3: Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Lawyers to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you.
1: Okay, folks, we're back with uh, Jim Nomad Lawrence, obviously a man that was born to fly. Uh, Nomad, you served in Vietnam from uh, June of 68 through September of uh, 1969. Uh, tell the folks about uh, flying the A-4 Skyhawk in combat, and then you volunteered to fly the small Sesta O-1 Bird Dog as a forward air control. Big change.
2: Tell us about your uh, time in Vietnam. Well, um, yes, I flew the uh, A-4 Skyhawk with uh, Marine Attack Squadron 211 based out of uh, Lai. Uh, our primary mission was close air support to our ground forces, and uh, we supported uh, Marine, uh, Army, and, and um, Arvin, the Republic of Vietnam forces. Um, we flew a lot of uh, missions uh, in the early part of uh, uh north vietnam and then uh, we also flew into laos oh i'm sorry we weren't really in laos but uh, we
1: weren't in laos sir
2: <laughs> uh no yeah i remember that now sorry i had a cranial flattish but uh, uh flew the a4 um and i had uh flown with one of the guys that was flying bird dogs the uh the bird dog uh Ford Air Controller Mission was an all-volunteer outfit up at VMO-6 at Tree, and uh, Don Love was uh, up there one day, and I was flying an airstrike uh, with him controlling, and when I finished the strike, uh, he said to me, hey, Jim, uh, we lost a couple of guys. Uh, Is there any chance you'd volunteer to come up and fly the bird dog? And being 21, I have this flow in my DNA that when somebody says, hey, Jim, we need your help, you know, I go, okay. And uh, so I told Don that uh, Mike Whitehouse was the uh, detachment commander uh, for the Bird Dogs, and you could only fly the mission for six months uh, because of the uh, loss rate. So anyway, I went to the tanker, refueled, and went on back to Chulai. When I landed at Chulai, I walked into ops, and our skipper, Ed Graham, one of the greatest guys in the world, uh, came up to me, and he said, what have you done? And I told him, uh, I said, well, Skipper, if you don't have any pictures, you can't prove anything. And he uh, said, I have a flash message here for you to report the Quang Tree of the 6 to fly the bird dog immediately. And he said, in fact, they're, they're sending a C-130 down here to pick you up in two hours. And I looked at him, and I said, you, are you kidding me? <laughs> and he said, uh, no. He said, don't you know those guys are getting killed up there? And I said, well, yeah, kind of. So anyway, he shook hands, and I beat feet to my hooch and grabbed my gear, and um, a good buddy of mine, Jim Reese, came in and he said, where are you going? And I told him, and he said, well, I'll go with you. And I said, no, no, but that's another story that uh, is in the book, uh, Vietnam to Western Airlines. Uh, Bruce Cowie did some magnificent work in four volumes, but anyway. I grabbed all my gear. Reese said, I'm going to go get a Jeep, and I said, yeah, yeah first lieutenant's going to go find a Jeep. Well, two minutes later, he pulls up in a Jeep, and I did not know, want to know where he got it. But uh, we went down to uh, the, the uh, terminal there at uh, Chula, and C-130 comes in. This sergeant comes out yelling, Lieutenant Lawrence, and I raised my hand. He said, come with me, sir, and, stopped, and they flew me up to Danang where a CH-46 picked me up and took me into uh, Quang Tree. And I got in there, I guess it was late evening, and at 6 o'clock the next morning, I had a uh, bird dog strapped to my fanny uh, with uh, one of the guys that had been flying there, Steve Palmison. Steve checked me out in the bird dog. I fired six rockets. 2 o'clock that afternoon, I was out on my first patrol controlling airstrikes. Um, It uh, was pretty interesting you know i figured you know what could possibly go wrong going into the fight in the a4 at 500 knots or going into the bird dog at treetop level at 100 knots you know what could possibly go wrong and uh, so we used to fly with the windows open so we could hear him shooting at us and this that and the other but it was an incredibly rewarding experience flying the uh, the bird dog uh, working with our grunts and uh, leaving as many American lives as you know you could possibly say so
1: it uh, it was interesting to say the least. Nomad, nomad do you remember your first combat mission in A4 and what did you think about your first mission?
2: Yeah actually I do uh we got there um, into well we were in Okinawa we were supposed to be in Okinawa for about a week and we've gotten in at like 11 o'clock that morning well at 2 o'clock that next morning, uh, they came in and, and uh, awakened only the pilots and said, uh, you guys are going in-country right now. So we, they had a C-141, Air Force 141 that flew us into da Nang. The 130 picked us up, those of us that were going to Chulai. Got into Chulai around 11, 12 o'clock. Uh, two o'clock that afternoon, um, I was on my first combat mission with one of my buddies who i had flown with, uh, Matt Greeley, had been in my squadron in Beaufort, um when I came out of flight training, so Mac led me on my first flight, and uh, it was an interesting one. Uh, we went against a uh, North Vietnamese outfit that had occupied this hill, and you could see them running around on top of the on top of the hill, and you know oh. we went and did our thing. So that was my first one. <laughs>
1: well, uh, how, for the folks listening in. How did you feel on that first combat mission?
2: Well, I, was, uh, I, I wasn't scared at that point. Of course, you know, you're so busy um, that you really don't have time to, to get scared. Now, there were a number of missions that I knew that we were going into a pretty hot area. And, of course, you're, you're kind of dry-mouthed. There's no doubt about that. Um, and it—you, uh, the biggest thing about flying combat missions anywhere is that you want to make sure that you do your job. You don't want to have one of your buddies go and do that job and, and something happen, you know, when you were supposed to do it. Interestingly enough, when I was nine years old, I read a book called Uh the Hunter by Ernest K. Gann. One thing I learned over there as a young combat pilot was you learn to accept uh, things like, okay, I flew that mission today, my buddy flew that mission yesterday or tomorrow, and he got killed, and I didn't. You know why? So you learn to accept things, but not understand things sometimes. So
1: it could be uh, it could be a bit challenging. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess. I remember the first time I interviewed you. Uh, you told me the story about how you were flying on these missions and everything else, but. You realize one day they were shooting back at you. What happened on that day?
2: <laughs> yeah, we—they uh, had shot down a uh, one of our helicopters, and we went in. We were scrambled to go up and take on these uh, gun emplacements. And uh, I remember vividly. I can see it right now. I rolled in, and all of a sudden, I realized that these uh, these orange golf balls were. Coming, floating up at me, and then zipping by my canopy, and zipping by my airplane, and you know, it dawned on me that uh, well, these these guys are shooting at me, but I figured that was only fair because I was about to shoot at them. So it was uh, <laughs> it was uh, pretty eye opening uh, the first time that uh, you take on really heavy flak, uh, thirty seven millimeter. Uh, that was about the biggest that ever had shot at me. Uh, unlike the guys up north that uh, had everything from 100 to 85 to 57s, you know, guys like China Lauder um, that went downtown every day. So, yeah, it's uh, it's kind of sobering. And the first time I took a hit, um, I took a hit right on the center windscreen of the A4, which was the only bulletproof window. But I took a 50-cal round that, uh, that shattered my, uh, the front part of my windscreen. And uh, that kind of gets your attention.
1: Well, I guess so. Wasn't there an instant where, uh, uh, I think you are flying the bird dog, the Cessna, and a round came in right. here, helmet? Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, I had a, uh, yeah, I had a, uh, I was engaged. The, the North Vietnamese, who I have tremendous respect for as, as troops, they were very dedicated uh, troops. But anyway, I was on this one mission where we were taking ground fire, and uh, I had troops in contact. And long story short, I took a round, uh, fortunately, it was an AK, apparently it was an AK round because if it had been a 50-cow round, it'd taken my head off. And uh, I just happened to be leaning right in the right spot because it came through my left quarter panel on the bird dog and ricochet, hit, hit the side of my helmet, and kind of bounced out the top, uh, kind of rang my chimes. But, uh, you know, that was the, the first time and,
1: yeah, it, it can... Uh, It can be a bit sporting. (laughs) You finally realize they was trying to kill you too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, uh, it's kind of sobering. Uh,
0: Sometimes Uh, you'd come off a mission
2: after you'd take... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, sometimes, you know, you would get into a really bad fight either in the A4 or in the Bird Dog and you were so busy that you really didn't have time to get scared, but then when you're, you're headed RTB back to home, you uh, suddenly kind of shake, and you go, holy, whatever. Uh, that was really interesting, and then you just realize how dry your mouth is, and your knees are knocking and everything else. So, anyway.
1: <laughs> All right, we've got about two minutes before our next break. Uh, briefly, for the folks, compare a jet fighter like the Skyhawk to the Cessna Bird Dog.
2: Well, obviously, uh, the fighter, the A4, is a 500-plus mile-an-hour airplane. We usually went into the fight, whatever we were dropping, you know, at 400, 500, you know, 550 knots, whereas the bird dog, top speed, was 120 miles an hour. So we would, uh, I guess you would say that the bird dog was a a bit more vulnerable, Uh, and the North Vietnamese would only shoot at us uh, on a couple of occasions. One if they knew that we had seen them and then two if they knew they could shoot us down but once we saw them and started controlling air, artillery or naval gunfire uh, then they would do everything they could to shoot you down so you were down in the very low environment uh, in the bird dog uh, which was our mission and then the A-4 obviously our mission was entirely different than uh, A-4 is a magnificent airplane I love that airplane even though I was scheduled with the Fly Phantoms um when i graduated got my wings when i got to my air wing they were losing so many a4 guys they sent five of us into the a4 um which really kind of broke my heart originally because I, I wanted to fly phantom so bad but then after flying the a4 on its second flight i just
1: fell in love with that airplane it's a great jet yeah it was i think john mccain was flying that when he was shot down was John McCain was, and
2: actually John McCain was one of my first flight instructors at vt 7 when I went to basic jets at Meridian. I actually have films of John and I flying together.
1: i will be doggone. I'd like to see those sometimes. Okay, folks, we're going to our second break. Stay with us. We have three more wars to go through.
0: The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects,
1: Okay, folks, we're back with uh, Jim Nomad Lawrence, uh, fighter pilot. Uh, I don't know if there's an airplane he hasn't flown yet. Uh, Nomad, we were talking about the A-4 Skyhawks and the Cessna Bird Dogs that you flew in Vietnam, and you described two close calls that you had. Were there times when you got back to base and realized you had a couple holes in your aircraft you didn't know about? Uh, yeah, yeah, you... Uh you would, uh, you know, get
2: back and knowing that you'd taken some pretty good fire and and then walking around the airplane, either that or your crew chief would come up and go, hey, Lieutenant Lawrence, you need to come look at this. And, you know, there were bullet holes in your airplane. <laughs> so sometimes I, the first time I got hit with 50 Cal fire, I kind of stumbled across a uh, gun emplacement, and they pretty well had me but they put some holes in my airplane. When the fifty cal hits your airplane, you can you can kind of feel that one.
1: So I bet, I bet. All right. Now, when you came back, you did finish college, and you served in the reserves. But um, they called up the very best, obviously, for duties in Bosnia, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Tell us about those duties, Nomad. Well, I went through.
2: Uh I did transfer into the Navy, and um, I flew A-7s uh, with the Navy. Got to go back on the carrier, uh, Lexington, uh, Forrestal, and uh, Eisenhower when we did our two weeks. But anyway, um, when my Navy A-7 squadron was going to use Sixes, uh, I was scheduled to go to A-6 training, and uh, the CAG came in, commander of the air group came in and said, well, we've got enough A-6 guys here in the Atlanta area. That We're not going to transition anybody but the um, guys at the top, Skipper and the XO, and then the three junior officers. Well, I'd already made commander, and so I was an 05. Well, anyway, a good buddy of mine that I'd flown A-4s with, and I had known for a long time, Dave Marshall Pig Dog. Pig Dog was the uh, commander of an Air National Guard A-10 squadron up in uh, Massachusetts. And I had uh, had the opportunity, I was selected to go to the Air Force uh, Fighter Weapons School at Nellis, so I spent the, uh, seemed like an eternity, but I think it was only about four and a half, maybe five months, going through that school. So that's kind of a plus uh, to be able to wear that patch. Uh, it's, it's kind of quite an honor, actually. So anyway, I called Dave and uh, talked to him, and he invited me to come up to the squadron, so I came up. I went up to the squadron and sat down with he and the wing commander, and um, they decided, well, we'd love to have you, but, you know, we can't take you at at an 05 uh, as a lieutenant colonel any way that you could get a reduction rank. Well, talking about throughout my aviation career, you know, I've run across some pretty amazing people, and one of my best friends happened to be the two-star general that was the head of the Air National Guard, and so I called him asked him, would that be possible? And he said, absolutely. So anyway, long story short, um, I was put back as a major. I begged them to put me back as a captain because I, I wanted to stay in the cockpit. I didn't care about rank. And uh, anyway, I was out of the Navy and in the Air National Guard in a day and a half. I was sworn in at 2 o'clock the next afternoon, flying A-10s. Um,
1: we went to... Uh, uh just so folks know, the A-10 is that lovable Warthog that is, I mean, really famous. I mean, I think everybody likes that airplane. So continue on, and, and then also tell us how you like flying the A-10 Warthog.
2: Well, the A-10 was an amazing airplane. Uh, it, uh, you know, was, was big and ugly, and that's why I got called a Warthog. Um, anyway, we ended up, my squadron ended up getting activated for uh, combat duty in Bosnia after they uh, shot down what's his face uh, we were activated and we were sent to Aviano, Italy where we flew combat missions uh, against the uh, Serb forces originally we were just flying patrol missions over Bosnia and then when the Serbs shelled the marketplace in Sarajevo and killed all the civilians NATO finally got the balls to uh, go do something and uh, so we were activated uh, into the, um, oh, it was a, an augmented wing. And so anyway, long story short, uh, the first mission was, uh, was the second element, two, in the twelve ship, and our target was uh, the largest armor repair facility in, in the Balkan area, and it was in a town called Hadici, which is uh, just outside of Sarajevo. My wingman and I, uh, Dan Peabody, was my wingman. So we took off at uh, two o'clock in the morning. Uh, when we took off, the field outside of the airfield was completely covered in TV, CNN, and all the other <laughs> local European. So I told everybody, I said, "Okay, they know we're coming because we've just been on we've just been on television." So uh, it was pitch black night, we went down the Adriatic, uh, rendezvoused with our tankers, we popped off our fuel, and uh, waited for Magic, which was the AWACS, to uh, give us the green light to go in or to return to base. Well, surprisingly enough, I was MAKO-27, they called, uh, Magic called me and said, go green, which meant go secure radio, and went to secure radio, and they said, uh, your weapon's free, proceed to your targets. And uh, well, I can't exactly tell you what I said, but it uh, it surprised me that uh, that NATO was in fact going to do something. So anyway, I went back up, called everybody to green, told them to proceed to their targets, got speed, Dan and I proceeded to our target. Um, long story short, I rolled in, uh, locked up my uh, tread assembly building, and before I could fire my Maverick uh, infrared guided. Uh, missile my wingman started yelling at me nomad nomad sam sam you know break well normally when you tell a guy to break you tell him which direction well dan had never seen a real sam coming up and it was coming up behind me so i didn't see it but anyway i just said Okay, i'm going left so i put about seven 70s on the airplane broke hard left picked up the sam uh defeated it and then uh Dan didn't call me. Nomad, break right, two Sam's right, two o'clock, so I broke there. Anyway, I ended up defeating six Sam's. Uh, three AAA sites opened up on me. I had uh, these basketball-sized, golf-ball-sized, tennis-ball-sized tracers going all around my airplane, uh, flak breaking up, you know, bursting everywhere. It got uh, rather challenging. And then uh, the British artillery opened up, and they could silence two... Of the anti-aircraft sites, and they did, but there was this third anti-aircraft site that was located right next to the SAM site where the six SAM came up. And so I broke into it, and I figured, okay, this is this is you know I'm not going to get out of this. So I threw my gun on and engaged the uh, SAM site and engaged the AAA site, and it was like the gunfight at the OK Corral. I had tracers literally zipping by my canopy, and I opened fire on this uh, this side and got a really good secondary. Uh, blew up the SAM site, blew up the anti-aircraft site. And then uh, my wingman called at that time, Nomad, I'm hit. And uh, so anyway, broke off, told Dan to go feet dry, I mean uh, feet wet, over the Adriatic. I finally chased him down, and uh, we went to the tanker. We were out of gas. And uh, the tanker guys were incredible, as all tanker guys are. Um, they rolled in right ahead of us. I told Magic that we were desperate for fuel. And they rolled in, the tanker rolled in right right in front of us. It was just an incredible rendezvous on their part. And uh, we took on fuel and uh, returned to Aviano. And that was day one of uh, Deliberate Force, Operation Deliberate Force. And uh, we flew combat missions for the next 35 days. And, uh, and then the Serbs finally gave up, and we actually escorted them out of bosnia we flew cover for them out of bosnia so that was uh that was it and then uh, iraq uh we flew in southern watch um flew combat missions uh, over iraq and southern watch and uh that uh, and i ended up retiring uh from the a10 uh, from the military um, 39 years and then uh I got a phone call one day and asked me if I'd volunteer to fly a reconnaissance aircraft in Afghanistan. And there again, my flaw in DNA surfaced, and I said, sure. So anyway, we <laughs> ended up checking out in uh, what is, uh, amounts to a King Air 350, a turboprop aircraft that uh, we did, a reconnaissance mission. Uh, we did uh, close air support uh, with our, our ground, and not close air support, but we supported our grunts on the ground. And uh, so I did two tours over there in Afghanistan, and we were actually attached to the, uh, technically attached to the 101st
1: Airborne. So that was it. Uh, That's enough. Okay. I think a lot of folks have seen the uh, A-10 Warhol fire that uh, unbelievable minigun, or Gatling gun. It's not me, that's, that's for sure. Nomad, describe what it's like in an A-10 Warthog when that Gatling gun starts flying those rounds off.
2: Well, that's true. The A-10 was designed around the uh, Gal 8 30-millimeter uh, uh, Gatling gun, has seven barrels, fires 70 rounds a second. And uh, we carried, uh, if I remember right, 1,142 rounds. And that day over Bosnia, I fired over 900 rounds without ever letting up on the trigger but um, when you check out in the A-10, the first time you go to the range and fire that gun, uh, the first thing you do is just get all glassy-eyed because that, uh, that gun is just absolutely amazing. Um, we took out uh, tanks, armored personnel carriers. Um, the A-10 and that Gatling gun uh, was an absolutely awesome, awesome weapon system. Um, nobody, the bad guys definitely didn't like the A-10. Uh, Because they knew when it showed up, uh, if you were in a tank or something like that, the first thing you wanted to do was get out of that tank. So (laughs) it even got to a point where the guys would give them time to get out, give the crew time to get out, and then they'd go and blow the tank up. So, yeah. Really? uh, Yeah, the 30-millimeter gun on that A-10 was uh, awesome. That's about the only
1: way to describe it. Does it it, uh, rattle your teeth?
2: No, but it took both hydraulic systems. You know, a lot of people have asked me, well, you know, how much airspeed did you lose when you fired that gun? Well, you didn't lose really any airspeed. Uh, But uh, it, uh, you know, you knew the gun was firing for sure. In fact, initially when they were developing the A-10, the first time they fired that gun, it emitted so much gas, gun gas, that it actually flamed out both engines. And the test pilot uh, was not able to get them relit, so he had to eject out of the airplane. So to fix that, there are two um, trigger pulls, two detents on the trigger uh, in the A-10. And uh, the first one, when you squeeze the trigger, the first detent, the ignition system in the engines uh, kicks in. So that when you fire the gun, the engine is getting constant ignition and therefore didn't, didn't you know, flame out. And also the SAS system, the stabilization system, would kick in to make the airplane just rock-solid. So, wow! yeah, awesome, awesome.
1: It is awesome, especially in ground support. I know the troops love it. I've talked to uh, uh, Army guys and Marines, and they absolutely love the A-10 Warthog. Folks, we're going to our last break. Stay with us. Uh, uh, We're going to go through about uh, 41,000 hours of aviation. (laughs)
3: HOF.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much.
0: You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Okay, we're back with uh, Jim Nomad Lawrence. Uh, Nomad, you mentioned in one morning in Bosnia you got six SAM, surface-to-air missiles. Uh, I think everybody would really like to know what it was like to dodge six SAM missiles uh, in one morning. Tell us about that.
2: Well, it certainly makes an interesting morning, that's for sure. And uh, fortunately, they were uh, IR, infrared, so they were trying to lock in on the exhaust plume from my engine's. And we carried, uh, in the A-10, we carried a, um, a huge amount of flares since our primary threat over there was a shoulder-fired SAM. Um, actually, you're, you're really so busy um, trying to defeat um, these missiles, and the big thing that you tried to do was make it so acute, the turn that the missile would have to make to hit your airplane so acute that it would tumble its gyros or it would, it would miss you. And uh, that's what you tried to do. So you were, I was very, very busy. And really, when Dan called me um, and told me you'd been hit, you know, and I just defeated that 6 Sam, that 6 AAA site, or that uh, other AAA site, I uh, really didn't have time to to think about it until we were en route after refueling, um, going back to Aviano about, you know, holy cow, <laughs> you know, that was rather exciting, and uh, so, anyway, and then after, I, and I happened to be flying my own airplane, 626 had my name on it, and when I landed, uh, my crew chief, uh, Tim, Tim uh, actually painted the uh, six Sams on, on the side of my airplane, which was, uh, was kind of interesting, but anyway,
1: yeah, it, uh, yeah they wrote a book about you, uh, uh, no man's it's called God is My Co-Pilot.
2: No doubt about that. Um, <laughs> that's for sure. I mean, there were more than once in Vietnam and uh, that day over Bosnia, I didn't think that, uh, you know, I was going to see the next sunrise or the next sunset, as it may be. But uh, yeah, yeah, God definitely was my co-pilot, uh, has always been my co-pilot because there were a number of times when I just didn't think there was any way that uh, I was going to going to make it back, but uh, you know, fate is the hunter and uh, God is my co-pilot.
1: There you go. I love that. Okay, uh, I think a lot of folks going to be very interested that during your career you have logged at least forty one thousand two hundred and fifty hours behind the controls of numerous aircraft. How in the world you accomplished that, Jim? I mean, uh, that that's incredible. And tell us about some of the aircraft you flew.
2: Well, it uh, first of all, it was it was just really a blessing. I've been very, very, very fortunate uh, throughout my aviation career. You come to a crossroads like you do in life, and it seems for me that uh, every time I came to that crossroad. There was someone there to lead me down the path that i was supposed to go down and i was really fortunate i got to fly um, a lot of civilian airplanes i got to fly a lot of uh, airliners uh, i got to fly a lot of corporate jets and then i got to fly uh, a lot of fighters uh, the fa crusader uh, the a4 skyhawk the a7 corsair and the a10 uh, warthog where a lot of guys would go through their military career and they don't only get to fly one airplane so I was really, really blessed. Uh, one of the fun things in Vietnam was uh, I didn't drink. In fact, I think I had my first cold beer when I was 26. But a lot of the guys, you know, if they had been kind of celebrating life uh, a little bit more than they probably should have the night before, they knew that if I was available, I'd fly. So, you know, they'd call me and say, hey, uh, Jim, can you, would you mind taking this mission for me? And, of course, I said yes. And, uh so I got to fly, uh, got to fly a lot of extra missions because of that, and then I never turned down an opportunity to fly, uh, basically regardless of what it was or what it, you know what airplane it happened to be. So, in that regard, uh, I, I try and never turn down an opportunity to uh, to go fly. And after many years, it just accumulates. <laughs>
1: 432 combat missions. That's, uh, the that average is a lot more than uh, uh, one per day. So you flew like maybe two or three times some days? Yeah, flew two and three times, uh, one night, uh, when we had two
2: special forces camps being overrun, uh, ended up flying five missions, uh, that one night, but probably on average, uh, two and, and sometimes three. But, uh, yeah, that, uh, it's
1: what you needed to do and that's, that's what we did Jeez. Yeah, uh, you mainline aviation dude I, I, I tell you that, that's incredible but being a pilot myself I understand it I, I love aviation I love getting behind the controls I've been uh, uh, John let me uh, take over the controls of his stearman biplane a couple times I, I just love it but uh, I just cannot imagine over 41,000 hours behind the controls i gotta ask you this what is your favorite aircraft
2: <laughs> well i've been asked that many many times um and actually uh, that mainly comes in with fighters i guess and the the short answer is
1: the airplane i was flying at the time there you go there you go i i, I like you say you didn't turn down any mission i don't think you turned down any aircraft um Nomad, give us some of your final thoughts on your combat assignments and your long career in aviation. Well, when you're headed
2: into combat as a 21 year old, you uh, you know you have a lot of questions. Obviously, you know how am I going to do? You know, am I going to you know am I going to fly the missions I need to fly and all of that? And then once you get over there and It's like you've heard many times, Pete, and all the the veterans that you have talked to and have been on this program, you've heard this many times, that, yes, we flew for God and country, but we also flew for the guy next to us. Uh, You know, my wingman, my squadron mate, uh, you know, it was always a tremendous honor and a privilege to fly with these heroes. And the other thing, too, is, you know, the pilots, we got to have all the fun. Uh, even though we were getting shot at, you know that's what we would love you know that we love doing. But we couldn't turn a wheel without the folks in the squadron, and I don't care what you did. I don't care if it was in admin, I don't care if it was in you know, keeping the jets running, or it didn't matter. It was a team effort. And that's one thing that I, I really learned and appreciated as I went through my military career was that uh, the cumulative effort of everyone, put the airplanes into the air and put us on target and uh, so that was uh, that was something that I've always uh, lived with and the camaraderie obviously was uh, staggering Uh, some of the closest friends I've ever had in my life are guys that I've served with in my uh, Marine squadron in my Navy squadron in my A-10 squadron Uh, just incredible Americans uh, heroes all and it's uh, that's, uh, that's one thing, that, uh, that you learn to realize how incredible the experience is. Uh, I'd give anything in the world. I mean, if they called me right now and said, hey, Nomad, there's a, a fighter with your name written on it, I'd be there before they could put the phone down. But <laughs> unfortunately, that, uh, that's not possible. But,
1: uh, you know, God bless and many women that are doing it every day. And we got some good pilots out there too. I guarantee you. All right, I asked you, take hey, an airplane. Yeah, let me ask you this: What was your favorite mission? What was your favorite weapon that you used?
2: Well, I, the, the mission that we flew in Vietnam that was probably the, the best mission was that we flew um, what we call snake and nape. Uh, we carried snake eye bombs where we would uh, deliver at. Uh, Five hundred knots, set a couple hundred feet, four hundred feet, and a fin would pop out and give us time to clear the bomb blast, and then the napalm, and that's usually what we delivered when we had troops in contact and we were, you know, protecting our uh, marine and army and arvin troops on the ground. So that was probably my my favorite weapon load because I knew at the time that if we were carrying that weapon, then we were going in to save save lives, so uh, American lives and uh, so i guess that was it
1: okay very good uh no matter how many planes do you own now i know you had a uh, couple planes oh i only owned uh, well the only
2: airplane that i own is my rv8 that i built uh 21 years ago uh i still get to fly through the goodness of Colin underwood uh who owns the t6 i get to fly the t6 whenever i want to and uh you know fortunately um my airplane, my RV-8 is right in the hangar with the T-6, and uh, a guy named Rod Schneider, who's a retired Delta mechanic, uh, takes care of the T-6 and helps me take care of my airplane. So that's, that's about it. I only own
1: one. Okay. Tell us about that little airplane. I saw a photo of it. It's got the uh, tiger teeth on it and the whole bit. Uh, exactly what kind of airplane is that that you own?
2: Well, it's a, uh, it's a kit-built airplane that, uh, you know, you, it's a Vans aircraft RV-8. I've got a 200-horsepower engine, so it's uh, pretty peppy. Uh, it's fully aerobatic. In fact, the poor little airplane doesn't know how to fly straight and level. Um, every time I go up, you know, we, we at least go inverted for a little while and, and do some aerobatics. But it's a tail dragger. It um, can be a little demanding, as all tail draggers are, uh, especially the T-6. T-6 uh, can eat your lunch. And the uh, the bird dog could too. The bird dog uh, could be a vicious little dog, and uh, really. But anyway, yeah, yeah. The bird dog uh, could be really challenging uh, uh, to land. Takeoffs, you know, have always been optional, but landings are definitely mandatory, eventually. <laughs> and uh, so that's a uh, case. But uh, I fly my RV8. I try and fly it. Uh, hopefully, you know, once a week. Uh, take it to go visit friends and, and family and uh, it's a great little airplane
1: great great uh did you i think during your career you actually trained some chinese pilots on commercial aircraft and i believe that you saw some chinese fighter aircraft is that correct uh
2: that's correct um i when i was in uh, afghanistan I got a, uh, an email from a very, very dear friend of mine, he like my brother, a guy named Duncan Kearns. And Duncan and I had flown fighters together uh, in the Air Guard, in the uh, South Dakota Air Guard, flying A7. But anyway, Duncan uh, contacted me and asked me if I'd be interested in becoming a, a Boeing 787 instructor pilot, simulator instructor pilot for Boeing. And I said, sure. And so he gave me who to contact. So I sent off my stuff to him while I was in Afghanistan. and. They sent me back a message right away saying, well, can you be here next Thursday? And I said, well, that might be a little <laughs> difficult since uh, I'm actually in Afghanistan. And they said, well, as soon as you get back, please contact us. So I did. I got back in, uh, I think, on the 10th of December. And then on the, so I let them know I was back. Well, on the 12th of December, they sent me a ticket to come to Seattle. And so I went up there, interviewed with uh, Boeing, was uh, selected to be a 787 instructor. Actually spent a lot of time in china in shanghai training uh chinese pilots
1: need to rapper. i'll
2: just say that the, the, the chinese pilots that could really fly were the guys that had been chinese military pilots had the phone or fighter guys
1: hey we need to wrap her yeah. and i'll just leave it okay okay yeah uh very very interesting interview thank you so much nomad uh We'll be back next week, folks, with another veteran story. Absolutely great interview, Jim. Thank you so
0: much. Oh, you bet, Pete. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.